So thanks for letting us be a part of this, and thanks for letting me share. And, and I do need to say what we've all been saying, um, and that is that that I'm very much a newbie to all of this. Um, I I shouldn't be up here, but I'm humbled for the chance to be able to do this. If anything, my role in all of this journey has been to just help Amy shine. And so whatever that takes, that's what I do. And I know, fellas, you in this room, we're trying to get our heads around this thing that's taken over our lives, right? And uh, we're trying to support as best we can and trying to get our heads around it. And Art, thanks for the challenge, for reading those six books. And guys, I know you're going to do a great job and narrate it in a couple of years for me. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm looking forward to being a part of that. And so... Um, so anyway, the quick disclaimer, nobody's done this, but I think I need to because I have no idea what is controversial, what is safe, what is this thought, that thought, what is just my own thought. And so the views expressed by Jason do not ex necessarily reflect the views of anyone else. Um, so there, that's it. <laughs> so just a real quick, if you can see it, I hope you can see it in the back. If not, um, you could Google Lewis and Clark 1803 map uh, Gallatin, uh, Secretary of Treasury, actually Gallatin. Um, and uh, we're going to swing back to this in a little bit. This is actually a combination. It's one of the best maps that was available in 1803. It's a combination of Aaron Aerosmith, Andrew Ellicott, James Cook, George Vancouver, and others. And it's, I just, there's something about a map, isn't there? As we are getting our place in the world to be able to have a tangible map. I know for our kids in the car, just uh, sorting through and learning to fold those is a good life skill. But <laughs> so, so where to start? Um, for us, maybe the place where Charlotte Mason intersects the Fiedlers is Christmas Eve 2011. I don't have all of the answers this afternoon, and, and actually I've been listening very much to a lot of the questions you've had, and fellas, I have been writing just as frantically as you have so that I can explain this when people ask what we're doing, and whoever comes up with this concise thing first wins, um, and so please post it and please share it, and yet there's something about a mystery that's unexplainable, right? And so in the explaining of a thing, often we lose its sense of otherness. And there is something other about this uh, that philosophy of education, but really is just an extension of the gospel, isn't it? And so, um, so the place where this starts for us is Christmas Eve 2011. It was a Saturday night. I remember it was a Saturday night because Christmas Day fell on a Sunday. And that meant the next day, our little three-year-old church plant, Water City Church, was having its very first Christmas service, which meant I needed to have a sermon done and worship ready to go and everything else. And so as I should have been doing that round about midnight watching the Truman Show, because that's a good one, uh, um, uh, was working on a project that was actually supposed to have been done, promised earlier in the week for my two girls. I was building them this really cool tree house that was going to allow them to do manipulatives and all of didn't have batteries or lights, which I was learning from my wife was the goal of parenting. And so, um, so there I was in the basement building, 
and the tree houses were going to be great, but the glue was still wet and the wonderful, colorful vegetable paint was still in its bottles and it just was going to be a late night. And into that very charged environment, Amy came down and said, do you have a minute? I want to talk to you about something I've been reading. And so... So I said, sure, what's, you know, what's going on? And I was hoping she wasn't going to ask how the tree houses were because they were not wrap ready. And um, did I mention I was a pastor? I had a lot to do the next day. But um, so anyway, into that charged environment, she comes and says, let's, you got a second. See, she had just finished, just like the webpage was still open, finished soaking in an article on a holy experience where Ann Voskamp wrote about the rhythm of her family which spilled into what homeschooling meant for them. And see, Amy had been an elementary school teacher, uh, kindergarten, and then a language specialist for six or seven years while I youth pastored before we had kids. And so she went to university for education and the whole nine yards. And so it was always in her. Uh, But that whole year, the tension of sending our, our little girl was the kindergarten or was it first grade? Kindergarten. Sophie off to kindergarten uh, for in the public school for the first time. In our neighborhood school, see, I was a church planner, and a theology of incarnation was very important to me. And so we intentionally lived in a rough neighborhood in Oshkosh. We intentionally lived where the sidewalks are old and all of that comes along with that. And But all that year, Amy had been feeling this tension of sending our daughter to school and having our bubbly, energetic, excited for life, Sophie, go out the door and then return emotionally drained and uh, physically exhausted to the point of just uh, don't touch me, just completely overstimulated. And seeing the heart of my wife, who is a heart of a mother, and the tension of all of that, uh, well, in my mind, I thought it was going to play out all right. See, I went to public school. I always made it way, made my way through the class each year, kind of found that class clown role to get in just enough trouble to have everyone laugh, but not enough to get, you know, held after school. And... And I got through it. My grades were up and down just like everyone else's. And it wasn't until after high school that I heard terms like dyslexic and attention deficit disorder applied to myself and partly explaining why my grades did this and why I couldn't pay attention and why I like to sit next to the window and watch the squirrels and why I would cry when I'd bring home my report card and my grades on that cycle would be on the low end and my parents would say, you could do so much better. And I knew in my heart I couldn't, but I knew that I could, but I knew that I couldn't. And so there was a part of me that thought, Sophie's just like me. And so she's going to go through this. And in a year, a couple of years, we're going to have her tested. And then I'm going to convince meds are okay for her. And then we're going to figure out how to do this with our next kid. And then the next kid. And then the next kid. And then eventually we'll be... But into that mix, um, well, into that mix, Aim came, and she said uh, she said something that I didn't think she'd say because we had talked about it. She said, "I think we should homeschool the kids." <laughs> and they're in this great breath of space, like in the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> when Frodo takes Bilbo's ring out of the fire. And you know the story. 
up to that moment. This could just be a forgotten magic ring, which is a whole other story, isn't it? I mean, what? how many rings were there? And But it could just be, and in that breath of a moment when he takes it out, it could have been anything. And in that breath of a moment, that all shifts when he looks and he sees the inscription on the side and the whole story changes. And in a moment, the whole story changed for our family in the inscription with Amy saying, I think we should homeschool the kids. And I had no idea about Charlotte Mason. Amy had no idea about Charlotte Mason, really. I mean, just an idea of what maybe could be and something beautiful. And in that little bit, all of the what-ifs blew away like a wisp of smoke. See, it wasn't just a magic ring. It was the ring. And this wasn't just a statement. It was the statement. Can you remember the point when you said those words? Can you remember the point in your own family when you took the risk and stepped into the charged environment of a workroom or and uh, after whatever it was, we could probably go around and share our story. And our origin stories are pretty important, especially in our culture, which is so fascinated with origin right now. Your origin is not insignificant. You don't need a treehouse that was not built yet. You don't need a... See, for each of us, we have a little bit different. Maybe for you, it was you said this sitting alone with a cup of tea after reading the first few pages of Susan Schaefer Macaulay's For the Children's Sake, which they do have a men's edition. You just have, it's do it yourself. And so (laughs) this is for uh, Jack. Stickers are cool, dude. So seriously. (laughs) So it's funny because on my flight uh, um, a couple months ago, we did in Tanzania what our church is doing in Burma, in Myanmar. In, uh, and so I knew we were, I was going to be sharing. And so I brought Amy's copy of For the Children's Sake, which was one of the, the one from the 80s, which is this amazing picture of give me a break for any guy to carry around, right? <laughs> and and so our, I think you need to re we need to have a men's line of it. And so, or any other guy, see a need, meet a need. So, um, so, so the other of it is, is duct tape or whatever, but seriously, this isn't, this isn't just for, for a joke. This went on so I could have coffee and not have this, whatever. So I think, I think we should homeschool the kids into that vacuum. Everything changed for you. Maybe it was that book. And perhaps for you it was over the course of a dinner conversation with a friend who was doing education differently for their family and was talking about, was taking with you the time to drill down deeply into a philosophy of education that you grew to know, know simply as Charlotte Mason. And maybe it was a decision you made and or that you didn't make and you are the product of someone else's decision decision someone else's risk we all have different ways we've gotten to hear the andrew peterson song uh, the many roads is this beautiful uh, song of the multitude of ways we get to where we are none of those are insignificant and so um Maybe your path's a little bit different. Perhaps this wasn't your choice. I mean, maybe you're sitting here and you're going, this is kind of my first dive into all this. And, I mean, I've heard about it and I've encouraged and I've whatever. But, you know, I'm here and and I remember hearing some guys saying they were wanting to figure out what it means to be all in. 
Maybe you're here because your wife read a blog and had a conversation that led to a book study that led to today, and that's sort of my story. See, I was just building my kids some tree houses in the basement. That's it. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle of that. Maybe for you, uh, you're in the process of, you heard about Charlotte Mason, but it was in the throes of doing something else in that doing something else was necessary, and somebody said it, that this was too beautiful to have real meaning and truth to it. In our pragmatic culture, beauty is often set to the side, and what a tragedy to our souls. But, And so for you, maybe it's no clean, straight line. Mason wrote, no neat system is of any use. It's the very nature of a system to grow stale in the using she goes on to say that it all has to be reexamined to see if it's still alive. No neat system. I love this, that there's no box curriculum we do with our kids, no workbook, no worksheets, no, hey, if I could just buy that, I could do it. It's this journey we have with them together, which is a difficult thing to explain in our turnkey culture, isn't it? But maybe you've come here wondering if any of this is worth the struggle Seth Godin, um, this fantastic thinker, maybe some of you have read some of his books. He wrote Poke the Box. He wrote just uh, a mess load of really good books. He said this. He said, keep starting until you're finished. And so if you're here today and you're kind of rebooting the system because you went off the rails or the rails went away and you didn't realize it, keep starting until you've finished. And here's the secret. You never finish. You never finish. And so, to me, one of the joys of being here is seeing the never finishing of so many of you who say, I've graduated out, I'm looking forward to having a fingerprint on my grandbabies, but you're still giving, you're still investing, and the legacy of that is going to ripple out in ways that you have no idea. Your giving is going to touch shores that you can't imagine. And so thanks, thanks for that. Now, my response to my wife, who took an incredible risk in sharing her still-forming dream, which to those of you who took that risk and shared a stirring of your heart, not knowing how it would be received, you have done and you are doing an amazingly brave thing that will have ripples on shores impossible for you to see even now. My response, no. No, we're not going to do that. Husband of the year. <laughs> the kids are fine, I said. I've got to finish these gifts. I still have to clean up my sermon. That's common language in our house, Friday and Saturday and Sunday mornings. <laughs> i got to land the plane, hon. I don't think so. See, there's nothing like risking to share a dream and having your listener give you all the reasons why it's not a good dream. I remember we were looking at youth pastoring in Oconomowoc down near Milwaukee. And the pastor had a philosophy of ministry that we thought we would gel with. And while we were there, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'd really like to youth pastor and do a community center away from the church that would actually connect with kids who aren't church kids. And, and you know, and kind of went down a rock wall would be cool and a gym would be cool. And, you know, we're, we'll do whatever, wherever the kids are, let's get them in. And he goes, I don't think that's going to work. He said, he literally said, I think you need a different dream. And that was it. We were done right from then. Now, I know there's some of you in this room and you've shared your dream and the person closest to you said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Or they pushed back against you. 
And there might be a few of you in here who have those really close to you. Maybe it's not the closest, but it's within that circle where it hurts. And you're wanting to figure out how to invite them in and bring them in. And I'm going to share a couple things from my own story because I think there's some. But if there's anything, there's no universal in, uh, in this journey. And so for those of you who are in that setting where those around you are not all in, you, it is not forgotten. And you serve a Savior who sees it. And so keep doing it. Keep doing that which is unseen, as unto the Lord. What a beautiful that the further children's sake is a direct reference to what our Savior did for us. In giving of himself, we are called to do the same, that we don't know what will happen because of that. And so if you are in that setting, the Lord sees what you are doing. You have a place at the table at the front of the line. So this is a bit of a generalization, but it's fun to make stereotypes about homeschoolers, right? So um, I've grown up in the church, and I've been a part of Western Christianity my whole life. Not, I mean, Midwestern. I'm from Michigan, but by Western, I mean uh, this that we find ourselves in, even you Canadians. And um, I say that with love. I'm from uh, across the river from Sarnia, so, um, but... Uh, I've grown up in Western Christianity. I worked as a youth pastor uh, for six years with families and with students, and I saw the curriculum come across my desk that wanted me to do Bible studies about things that they were against. And Christians are really good about being against things, and I didn't want to be one more pastor that was against science because it didn't line up with someone else's philosophy of the way the world works, and I had this gut feeling that being against, I didn't want to be against public schooling or whatever that meant. I had this feeling that being against wasn't the right next step for our family. We were being called to be something more than being against. You know what I mean? And it was only later that Amy began pulling back the curtain of the wonderful world of Charlotte Mason and dropped lines like, we spread an abundant and delicate feast in the programs and each small guest assimilates what he can. And you go, what? (laughs) And the child of genius and imagination gets greatly more than his duller comrade, but all sit down to the same feast, and each one gets according to his needs and powers. An abundant and delicate feast is an altogether different picture than pitchforks and torches storming the castle of public education. Ours is going to be a family that's marked by moving towards something, not by movement away, which might look about the same. I mean, it's both movement, right? But it's a very different posture. Even if the thing you are moving toward is an unknown. Toward, even if unknown, is very different than a way. So Tolkien, the grand theologian who loved his pipes, said in Lord of the Rings, it's dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And it's true in Middle Earth, right? And it's true in your neighborhood. 
See, that night after emphatically, I mean emphatically, saying no in all of the ways that, guys, we don't want the fight, but you know it's right there inviting you to it. No, honey, that's not. After convincing her and me and her again that no is the answer, I circled back and said, tell you what, why don't you order that book, the one with the funny cover, Order the book and then do some more reading and then you can come back in a bit and debrief me. And, and, and I think I said, give me a pitch. And see what it's saying and how you're feeling. And so we as a family stepped out of our safe round hobbit door into the unknown. Wonderful and dangerous is the journey that we're on. And what simply became Charlotte Mason, which is a noun and an adjective and it's sometimes a verb, um, <laughs> And it wasn't for sure my idea, but see, we live in a culture that can champion our own ideas very, very well and does very, very poorly with someone else's. So if you're here and you've not had someone champion your idea, it's still worth putting out there. It's still worth risking. We'll come to that in a second. See, my family uh, ingrained in me as a kid one of the core values that it's important to risk. And I come from a long line of risk takers, grounded risk takers. My dad was a mailman for 40 plus years. It was his first job out of the service and it was what he retired from. Um, We didn't bounce neighborhoods. He didn't bounce jobs. But um, he and my mom were reluctant to tell us boys, my older and younger brother, that we couldn't do something. And so if you want a skateboard, awesome. Let's build a half pipe in the yard and see how much fun that is. Or you want to go to college out of town or out of state, that's great, even though no one in the family's done that. Or whatever it was, it was go for it. So there's nothing better than seeing the dreams of my wife come to life or scarier. And it goes both ways. See, my wild dreams of starting a church in a city that we hadn't even had lunch in was her response of let's do it. And so there's something in this for those of you who might be feeling pushback from others. There needs to be a safety in the relationship to be able to share vulnerably. And oftentimes we find ourselves dying on the wrong hill. One of my favorite books is The Killing Angels by, I can't remember his name right now, but the account of Gettysburg. Uh, It's the book that uh, Gettysburg, the movie, was based on. And the story of these fantastic, I mean, right in the opening scene where where the general's looking and he's seeing the Confederate Army coming, he just says, this is how it's going to play out. But he says, this is good ground. And his buddy says, this is the best ground I've seen. And he says, let's hold this. And then later in the movie, when the main regiment is the end of the line and round top, little round top, And he shows them and says, we are the far extreme of the Union Army and gives them this. But he says, this is good ground. And we're going to defend this ground. See, too often in my own life, I'm dying on a hill that's not good ground. And the reason I'm dying there is because maybe the idea wasn't my own. Maybe, uh, well, we'll get to that. 
So there's nothing better than encouraging the dreams of your spouse. If we had time, we could get into how we in the Western church really mess up the roles when it comes to husbands and wives. And we, somewhere along the line, wondered what the Bible had to say about that. And so we turned to Ephesians and we turned to Colossians and it gets read in weddings about submitting and all that jazz. And But we missed the very front line where Paul says, submit to each other. And part of that means whatever is best for who is closest to you that you have tied your life to, that means you put their dream, their need before your own. But what we do is we fast forward to the line where it's husbands, wives submit to. And this isn't about complementarianism or egalitarianism, or if you're into all of that, you need to read different books. God created you and connected you to somebody to support the dreams of that person. And so, fellas, I'm going to step on toes a little bit, but we need that. We respond to that, right? I wish there were somebody who would have stepped on mine and helped me work through some of these things because leading with no probably wasn't the best thing that night. So... If you push back against the dreams of your spouse, don't come back to a passage in Colossians or in Ephesians, please. Feel free to pull the camera back a bit and show the whole of the scene and see if maybe there's a check for yourself. So here's where this is so fun. As a Jesus follower, we're called to risk, right? Not a life of comfort or safety or control, but you're called to the edge, to the unlovely, to the unlovable, to the un, all the uns. And one of my favorite uh, authors uh, wrote a book called The Barbarian Way, Erwin McManus. Maybe you've heard of him. I'll give you a book recommendation. It's called The Barbarian Way. And he leads with the story of one of the Crusades. I forget which one, but maybe you remember. I think it's Richard the Lionheart. They take his heart in, uh, in, in the the guy leading the battle in, into, he takes this king, his king's heart, which part of the crusade was to take the king's heart to the Holy Land. And so he's got his heart on a, on a chain. You know the story? I totally should have written this down. This is a living story. He takes his heart and he throws it into the battle, like throws it into the enemy. And he says, fight for the heart of your king. And so it rallies and they go and it's just this fantastic. So anyway, this book, The Barbarian Way, leads with that. I mean, it's kind of hard to not feel charged or inspired going into that. So McManus says uh, in this whole book about risk, he's remembering this time where his son had called to him from the second story bathroom window, McManus outside on the ground, son's second floor window, and he asked his dad if he thought he could jump out of the window onto the shed. I think it was the shed. And he says, do you think I can make it? Any of you have that kid that shouting out the window, do you think I can make it? I mean, maybe they've got a, you know, a sheet tied to them for a parachute. They're a joy. (laughs) McManus says, if our children are going to walk away from Christ, we need to raise them in such a way that they understand that to walk away from Jesus is to walk away from a life of faith, risk, and adventure, and to choose a life that is boring, mundane, and ordinary. For Aaron, that's his son, the jump was fraught with danger. From my vantage point, I could see that though the jump was terrifying, he would find himself triumphant. And it was important that he jumped, and perhaps even more important that he knew me as the kind of father who would always call him 
to greater endeavors rather than send him back to the safe place. You serve a God who's calling you to jump. And some of you are in the window looking, but most of you are midair. The first steps towards the messiness of here and now is recognizing my tendency to play it safe. So for those in your life who may push back or maybe you're here and you're kind of pushing back too, be reminded that you were made to risk and the idol of our culture is safety and comfort. It's one of the things that we just rage against at our church. You were not created to play it safe. You were created to risk. So when the opportunity came to share here, I had been reading um, Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. Anyone read this? Fellas, I know we all say we're not readers, right? Or I say it, I'm not a reader. And I didn't grow up reading books. Choose your own adventure. That was my books. And and they were... Keep that joke inside. That was my reading. And I picked up one of the Chronicles of Narnia, Silver Chair in the Middle. No one recommended it. I picked it up, and I just, I was confused, but I loved it. I wasn't a reader. Read a little in high school, uh, you know, the usuals, the outsiders, and, and just all of the ones that you go, that should have gone to something else, but it didn't. And so I went to university and still wasn't a reader, and it was working security at a desk in the Twin Cities at the Skyways that I started reading and realized, actually, I am kind of a reader, but it's not easy to read, is it? And so, guys, if you're like me and it's not easy for you to read Audible, audible audible.com. I'm not kidding. Now, I know purists listening to a book is not reading a book, but I'm going to say it's reading a book, and here's why. It is the baby steps, what about Bob, into (laughs) into the life of reading. And so the first book I read by Stephen Ambrose was uh, Band of Brothers. And for some of you, maybe you saw the miniseries, and what a great story. But in reading this, I remember it's right here, to Jason from Amy, L.E.R. 2014. Jan, thanks for having this that day. And there were two copies. Uh, It's closed now, but there were. This is a fantastic read. Uh, the un- Undaunted Courage, it's the story of Lewis and Clark and Thomas Jefferson and the opening of the Midwest. And, and I'm not quite sure how to lead into this, but it's kind of nice because everyone's familiar with Lewis and Clark. And so let me just kind of place it on the timeline for you. We're in about 1801, 1802, 1803, 1804 is when they set out. And some other folks had set out before then. There was this one guy who was a bit of a talker, and he said, I can get across not only the continent, the American continent, but I'm going to start in Paris, and I'm going to go across um, Russia, and then I'm going to take a fur ship, and then I'm going to march across the American continent with my two dogs, and I'll see you in Washington, and I think he said two years. And he wasn't just kind of saying this on the stage. It was at a dinner party with uh, Jefferson, who was known to have these incredible uh, dinner parties, right? And uh, needless to say, he didn't make it far. He got into Siberia and was arrested and promptly sent back to 
Paris, but this this desire to find really a passage from east to west and in the trade that that would make and the unifying of a of a country was many of the things that was on Jefferson's mind. So um, Ambrose uh, takes a lot of time leading up to the point of the starting of the journey. He uh, says that Lewis, Meriwether Lewis, had been uh, President Jefferson's personal secretary. He had daily access to one of the greatest of American minds. And he says, think of the conversations they must have had as they were dreaming about what it would take to get across and to make it. And some of you are from area very close to where uh, they had traveled. And one of my life goals is to do a bit of that because... It sounds like a lot of it is still very close to what it was when the core discovery went, and how cool is that? So anyway, Ambrose says this in the book. He says, uh, kind of in the lead-up to this, and this gets back to this map, okay? So he says um, he also conferred with Albert uh, Gallatin, a serious map collector. Gallatin had a special map made up for Lewis showing North America, from the Pacific coast to the Mississippi with details on what was known of the Missouri River up to the Mandan villages in the great, uh, in the great bend of the river, today Bismarck. And a few wild guesses as to what the Rockies might look like and, of course, uh, the Columbia. There were but three certain points on the map, the longi- latitude and longitude of the mouth of the Columbia, of St. Louis, and of the Mandan villages, thanks to British fur traders. By the time he finished studying with Jefferson and Gallatin, Lewis knew all that there was to know about the Missouri and what lay to the west of it. Lewis's story is this amazing story of growing up in Virginia. He had wanderlust. He uh, just would travel. And in his traveling, he would journal. And not just traveling to travel, but travel the countryside and do essentially nature studying. And so he was educated in botany, and he was educated in geography, and he was educated in all the ways that a good Virginian boy was educated to use the sextant and to use all of the tools that were available to him at the time. He'd been perfectly prepared, some historians say, for this trip. But here's the thing, and I know you're not all going to be able to see this, but um, this is the best map that was available at the time. And so if you're wondering where Oshkosh is, it's right here where there's no lake. Apparently, uh, oh, yeah, Winnebago wasn't there yet. But So I grew up over here in Michigan. In, uh, in So the Mississippi, the Missouri, up to this dotted line, which is fascinating. And so there's a dotted line up, and then if you look, the Rockies are just a single ridge of mountains, which is completely accurate, right? (laughs) Not at all. Lewis knew all there was to know about the Missouri and what lay to the west of it. How great is that? Yet Henry Adams, in his History of the United States of America during the Thomas Jefferson presidency, what a title, He says there was something shaping for us to keep in mind. See, a lot was known, but if you look at this map, an incredible amount was not known. Any of you feel like as you were setting out on this that you had an idea of some things that were known, but you were very aware of what was not known? Here are some, this is awesome, here are some uh, things that were commonly held beliefs at the time. This is uh, according to Henry Adams. Not well, okay. 
He says that the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia might be the highest on the continent, that the mammoth, the giant ground sloth, and other prehistoric creatures would be found along the upper Missouri. Haven't found any yet. Any of you guys? No? Nope. Keep looking. Uh, that a mountain of pure salt a mile long lay somewhere on the Great Plains, that volcanoes might still be erupting in the badlands of the upper Missouri, that all the great rivers of the West, the Missouri, the Columbia, the Colorado, and the Rio Grande, rose from a single height of land and flowed off in their several directions to the seas of the hemisphere, this plateau. Most important, he believed there might be a water connection linked by a low portage across the mountains that would lead to the Pacific. They were spot on right. <laughs> Any of you feel like those were the things you held in the opening of your hobbit door stepping out? The journey was undertaken with an incomplete map and a fuzzy understanding of what they would find along the way. In their minds, Jefferson and Lewis saw the Rockies as being like the Appalachians, worn down and easily crossed. Geographer, historian, professor John Logan Allen writes, The way to the Pacific in their mind lay open and easy. It was the simple fact of imaginary geography that gave birth to Lewis and Clark expedition. Imaginary geography. So jump out of the story of Lewis and Clark for a second and into your own. How long have you been at this? Maybe you're fresh to the dinner party. Maybe you're hosting the party. What imaginary geography did you hold at the beginning? Those of us who are trying to figure out what it means to be all in, what imaginary geography did you hold? What thing were you pushing back against? What idea, what fear. I heard um, one teacher say that it's this beautiful story in scripture where, um, where God shows up and there's the terror of his followers and into that are the words, don't be afraid. That, that we are rightly to only fear the Lord. And when our fear is in its right place, then there is nothing else to be afraid of. And so I wonder what thing is imaginary geography for you? And the question, too, is this isn't just about you because you're all in. You're here. You're at the conference. It's not just about getting away from the kids, right? But those around you that you're communicating to and with and trying to get them to see the beauty of this thing that is so much more than just one more system, what imaginary geography do they hold? What idea of what it means to do this, to not do this, are they holding to them? So let's do this. Jump out of your story. And um, why don't we, I kind of liked what Jack did. Why don't we take a second and just around you, don't move your chairs unless you really are in a bad chair and you want one. There's a couple padded over here and... With those around you, what things were you pushing back against or was someone very close to you pushing back against or in fear of when you first started into this process? So let's take three, four, five minutes to share that, okay? Okay. Important for us to share not only what books are you reading with your um, uh, Form 3, is that the right language?
Um, it's that is really important. That's one of the beauties of a community to get together and to share, to not have to invent it yourself, right? But one of the others, and this isn't easy at all, is to be vulnerable enough to say, this is this thing that I'm carrying. See, it's not just others who carry the doubt, and it's not just... Um, the doubt isn't just something you need to uh, help someone else walk through, is it? Because some of the things that we were afraid of or that we carried in the beginning uh, or, or that someone else carried become things that we have to work through ourselves. That if you're around this for a while, not that they've transferred this to you or something or whatever, but the fears that you have, did any of you hear someone else voice one that you had had as well? Yeah. Yeah. They're common. And maybe there were a few unique. But I love, I love a squealing kid. It's fantastic. It reminds me of church. You should come to our church sometime. It's really fun. I love that Charlotte Mason says, um, it would seem that spontaneity is a condition of development and that human nature needs the discipline of failure as well as success. I meant to pause there. It would seem that spontaneity is a condition of development in the uh, the five or let's say 12-year-old because the meds are working in me just loves let's be spontaneous and let's go do something and and your lessons are only 15 minutes. How un-Charlotte Mason is this right now? I am dumping information on you for a very long amount of time. But that's okay. We have pictures. <laughs> so we're made for spontaneity, and we get it, right? We get it, even though we're conditioned for uh, routine. You were made for spontaneity. What's that tension? But then also, human nature needs, and I love that she calls this the discipline of failure. And maybe I'm misreading this. But I'm learning the, the beauty in this is maybe, I mean, yeah, you can misread something, but maybe they're, okay. The discipline of failure as well as success. We love success, don't we? A friend of mine um, who's working through a, degree in leading people, um, said that we love success, but we need failure because we don't learn anything from success. And in reality, often success in our lives, we had little to do with, didn't we? But we own the failure, even though everyone tells us failure is the best way to learn, right? Everyone says it. If you're not failing, they say it in church world. Uh, folks I read, blogs, whatever, pastors of giant churches that haven't failed in 100 years are saying, you need to fail. And us little on the side holding on with white knuckles are going, if I fail, it's came over. We know we need to fail, but who in our lives celebrates us when we fail? No one. Right? It's the example, it's the 
lesson. It's the, but listen, it's a discipline. She says it, and it is absolutely true. When we make our life choices based on a reluctance to fail, we are not risking. And you serve a God, I serve a God who created knowing failure was a possibility. And yet, out of his infinite love, still chose to create. And so God knows what it is to risk, and he's hardwired it into us, even though we serve the idol of safety and comfort. So that fear and that doubt that you carry may very well be the same one someone else carries. But here's the thing, and somebody said this at one of the lunch tables, and I thought it was spot on. In, in helping others through the journey, um, it's important to validate their fears and their frustrations and their failures. Because see, here's the problem. They're coming from a place that we can't understand. I'm coming from a place that even though I told you I'm from southeastern Michigan, but I live in Wisconsin now, you don't know me. And in the same way, even though we know those that are closest to us that we want to bring into this, there's so much backstory that is unknowable. And so giving space for people to be able to process. Wouldn't it be great if everyone just came on to a good idea and came along with us? But the reality is that rarely happens. How blasted was Apple when they were saying they were going to make the iPad? That's ridiculous, a big phone. We push back against ideas that aren't our own, even ideas that maybe are true or good or beautiful. I think it's part of the fall. And so for them, and this is an aside, but for others who are working through something, I read a book once, and I wish I could remember who wrote it. Um, he might not be safe in church world, so it's probably good. I don't remember for sure. But uh, I think it was a book on evangelism. And, uh, and this guy talked about how easily in church world we talk about somebody changing a worldview. When we are on the inside of a filter, a lens of life, which is the gospel, we look at others and say how easy it should be for them to walk into this that we know to be true, we know to be beautiful, we know to be all that it is. And yet we fail to realize the absolute difficulty it is to shift a worldview. We carry a way of seeing the world that makes sense or we wouldn't carry it, right? And so for others, this book talked about how, um, how difficult it is and how actually to change a worldview in there, in that sense, talking about going from non-belief to belief in terms of faith. But it applies here, I think, which may or may not be safe to say, but I think I'm in friendly room. A lot of this feels like evangelism sometimes, doesn't it? And boy, tracks were nice, but I don't think they ever really worked. And so giving people space to work from this place to this place means actually, and this is a reality, there needs to be a death and a funeral and a mourning on the inside of that change. Because the way of seeing the world here works, even if it's imperfect, even if it's fallen, it works or they wouldn't do it. This school system works. My educational upbringing works. I don't remember all of it, but it worked. And now you're saying it needs to be something else. And so the heels dig in, and there needs to be the process of allowing for a death and a burial and a mourning. 
But see, that isn't an easy process, is it? We need it to be clean because those are things that we're uncomfortable with. And we, and yet we all know that it's inhumane to look at somebody who's suffered loss and expect them to work through this at the pace we want them to work through it because we're uncomfortable with their process of mourning. To change a worldview requires a death. Here's another. This Charlotte Mason lady is really smart. One more thing of vital importance. Children must have books, living books. The best are not too good for them. Anything less than the best is not good enough. And if it's needful to exercise economy, how great is this line? Let go everything that belongs to soft and luxurious living before letting go the duty of supplying the books and the frequent changes of the books which are necessary for the constant stimulation of the child's intellectual life. We need not say one word about the necessity for living thought in the teacher. It is only so far as he, he, she says he, guys don't miss that, is intellectually alive that he can be effective in the wonderful process we glibly call education. She's not talking about the student there. So there's two wonderful truths in this, right? Number one, have at it. No budget for the books. <laughs> right? <laughs> First book of Jason, chapter 2. I'll tell you what, guys, we love to hunt, right? We love to search. We love to collect. Get that book list from your wife. And giddy up. <laughs> that is so much fun. I have been in communication with used booksellers in, in Ireland and in London, Dublin, which is Ireland, um, <laughs> because I'm convinced they're going to be able to get me some Jay Patterson, Peterson, Smith commentaries. And one, I've gotten one. Haha. See, that's the trouble. Now we're all kind of, right? Because you know Art's looking, and Nancy's looking, and, and you're looking. And, but guys, listen, it's not just a money thing to find these books. To look for these books is hours sometimes, literally hours. And so if you can carry a bit of that, yeah, maybe you can't do geography or science, but man, those are actually really fun subjects. I've been doing those with the kids. It's a blast. But guys, if you can get at that book list, that takes a bit of the burden off. And we love to do that, to hunt, to conquer, to capture. And you can even display them on your mantle like a trophy if you want. Look at this. Jack's saying he found it. There is something in that. So guys, in real life, come alive to that. It'll bring something else in you that you might not have realized was there. And so that's the first. Don't put this constraint. You can homeschool, but only within this parameter. I was so encouraged in the conversation with the fellas yesterday. Thanks for leading that. Um, that to hear these guys who are being intentional with their kids and being intentional with media in the house and what screens are available and all of that, 
we live in a culture that will drop 200 bucks on cable without thinking about it in the month and doesn't have any money for books. Let's shift that. But that's not the only one, is it? She's saying here that get some books and giddy up on it, but she's also saying that uh, there needs to be space for living thought in the teacher. And I've seen this in my own wife, and it, and, it, and it pains me. One of the reasons, I'll be honest, one of the reasons I push back against homeschooling is because I know whatever Amy does, she's all in on. And if she's all in on that, then that's one less thing I get from her. I mean, I'm just being transparent. And guys, we get it. Our wives have limited capacity, not ability, capacity. And if they're all circuits are busy, then that's that less we get. And let's be honest, we're broken and we're fallen and we need our spouses. And so it's on us to communicate if we feel like we're not connecting. Okay, guys, do that. And the way you do it is little ways like, hon, you need some space for your poetry tea time. Hon, I can see you've um, texted me with no smiley faces today. (laughs) Here's the Starbucks gift card. Grab whatever book you want, and I'll see you after I tell you it's all clear. I get it, guys. We're tired when we come home. It's part of the fall. We're supposed to be tired. We're working to redeem and all that jazz. But this of the soul of a teacher is so important. See, in our house, this translates to as soon as Amy starts to frazzle, she gets an overnight wherever she wants. Luckily, it's all been local. But somebody invited her to a dinner party out west coast, and so she might be. See, there's nothing more important than the soul of your spouse. And your kids are amazing, but let me tell you something. C.S. Lewis has some amazing things to say to the moms about your kids in The Great Divorce and in one of his, one of his other books, to put right things first, first things first. And so in the same way, well, Guys, do what you can do to nurture the soul of your spouse. Ladies, same way. One week was real rough at church, and I came home, and Amy had a stack of quarters and said, go to the laundromat and play (laughs) Pac-Man. And that just fed my soul. (laughs) Because I was listening to Audible's Plutarch in my headphones. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be, and that's fun to do every once in a while, guys. Let's be honest. It is fun. But it doesn't have to be. You've got a corner of your house that you can banish the kids from. Light a candle. Brew a cup of tea. And say, Mom's off limits. Ladies, your soul health is absolutely critical. It's so be aware of how high the RPMs running. You are not made to burn out. You are made for Sabbath rest. You are made to retreat. 
And so be aware of that. And our kids won't, they won't be bitter at our giving them all we've got and losing ourselves in it. See, I, when we first planted the church, how are we doing? Pretty good. When we first planted the church, uh, we weren't big enough uh, to get a paycheck from them yet. And that was cool because I, I, I was like Paul, I had tent maked. And, uh, and so, um, so I worked with folks with developmental disabilities for three years. Um, and those of you in that world, you are at the front of the line in the kingdom of heaven because you are serving the beautiful of the low and not low in the way the world says the low, but in the way that Jesus would have walked right to scooped up and explain the mysteries of the universe that none of us can get our heads around. And I think God had me do that job uh, working with folks with, um, with special needs because I had pride that I didn't realize was there. And you help a grown man who can't help himself shower at the Y after going out and you realize there are things more important in this world than everything else on my list. And one of the really cool things, my kind of specialty became working with guys with autism, which was really, really hard and really, really fun. It was really, really fun because I could, for whatever reason, get ahead of them and see the triggers, and it was maybe my ADD. And really, really hard. And one of the things, we had a specialist come in, leader in the field of autism, come in and, and train us community workers. We were essentially big brothers, big sisters for guys with, with needs. And the thing they said is the thing we all know, right? If you are tired, hungry, or stressed, you are not going to be able to function from the deeper cognitive places in your brain. I'm no expert. I'm a pastor. But I know if I'm tired, hungry, or stressed, I function from a place of not empathy, not place of taking the place of another. How are you feeling? Let me think about this long term. Here's where I'm functioning from, from fight or flight. That's it. It's it. And I don't know how this lines up with everything Jack was saying. I was taking notes like a madman through your motivation stuff. There's brilliant thought in that. But there is something to if you are in a state of high RPM or high stress or your marriage is needing outside um, folks to come along with you to help bring you back to a place of wholeness or health, or if you're physically hungry, we get that. But if your soul is hungry, you are going to function from a place of fight or flight. You are going to. We've got it, right? Kids the whole day, and they're fight or flighting, and you're fight or flighting, and nobody's moving. So that means you're all, what, fighting? I mean, in our house, not in yours. And so if this is the place where we are finding ourselves, there are so many in our culture that this is the norm and they think it's supposed to be that way, but it's not. You were made for rest. It's why it's one of the commandments that moves into the New Testament. Sabbath doesn't go away. And you were made to feed your soul. How awesome that Charlotte Mason says we need these living ideas. Nourishment the organism of our mind.
in this stress. And I know we can't get rid of all of these, right? Like, don't talk to me until I work out these three and you got the barometer and the color codes and the whatever, but be aware of this. The flip of this is be, if you can, aware of this and the others that you're trying to have come along in the journey. See, many of the people are under stress that you don't see because they're carrying it silently or their soul is not being fed, but they're teaching Sunday school or they're fill-in-the-blank or they're just completely tired. And when we force them to come to the place where we are, one of the best examples in all of the stories, we're a church that soaks on stories. We take long, long walks through the Bible, long walks. Five years it took us to get through Matthew, long walks. That's longer than Jesus did Matthew. <laughs> but there's a reason why Scripture is a narrative and poetry and history Stuff you know, you know this. One of the best examples of tired, hungry, and stressed, somebody who died on the wrong hill was Jonah, right? But God said to Jonah, is, right, is it right for you to be angry about a plant? Sure is, he says. <laughs> I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah's five. <laughs> it's totally fight or flight here. But the Lord said, have you been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow? It sprang up overnight, died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and so many animals? God is putting Jonah in his place. Historically, we know that Nineveh was not a safe place to be a Jew, that they spiked Jews on the way into the city that they were an outside uh, oppressive force, that there wasn't any of the Jews who said, you know, let's go to Nineveh and turn them around. And so when we read the book of Jonah, we talk about a whale or a fish, right? But we miss the reality that this is an anti-hero story in Scripture. Jonah is not a character we're supposed to model ourselves after. We get it. He reluctantly went to do the things. And he dug his heels in on the wrong things. Why? Because he had a completely different idea of the way God should do something of what should happen. And it ends with a story, and we talk whale or fish, but it ends with a question. Because this is this Hebrew way of ending a story that invites you as the reader into it, it's not supposed to resolve. What does it mean for the prophet of God to be in the wrong the whole entire way? You are meant to be drawn into that story. So I know this can feel a bit like the Sarah Grove song, Setting Up the Pins. The, the imagery of the old bowling job of the pin setter sitting down at the end of the lane. I grew up um, going to um, going to fish and chips on Fridays across the river in Canada because the gas was cheaper. So on Fridays we'd go over, and some of the Fridays we would five-pin bowl, which if you've never done it is this amazing, empowering thing for a kid. You get this ball that's as big as a croquet ball, and you get to hit five little pins down. It's fantastic. 
Well, we never went to any bowling alleys that had a pin setter there, but this used to be a real-life job. Set up the pins so somebody can knock them down, so you can set them up again. If there's not a more perfect description of what I feel like my wife is doing some days. And yet that is not insignificant and not worthless, not unseen. So I started, let's see. All right. Wow, we're doing great. Set it, set it. Okay. So I don't have all this worked out, but I'm convinced that short of the Holy Spirit quickening the heart of another, that this is the process of coming close and backing away and questioning and defending and hoping and not knowing. And that is a bit descriptive of my own story. I was uh, encouraged and um, uh, today talking at one of the tables at lunch saying, if you could give one podcast, one book, and one article to a friend who was questioning all of this, what would you give? And there was... um, uh, a, a delectable feast, right? Oh, man, I gave myself away and not listening. Delectable education. We did listen to a few of them. It's fantastic. You, you're already subscribed to these. And then it was, you know, for the children's sake is the one we all give our friends, right? But it's, it's not, let's be honest, it's not accessible to every guy. It, it's, it's a great book, but right, you're right, there's, There's space for a different voice in this, and maybe there's somebody in this room who needs to write that. And so, but sometimes we buy a book and we give someone a book and we think, there, I've done my part. But I think it's a little messier than that. So we were talking about um, this book, Undaunted Courage, and in this, there's these all these fantastic stories of how um, Lewis was great through all of it until he got impatient on the way home, and then he turned into this, he nearly massacred a village, I think it was over his dog, this uh, metaphor of when we rush, we do often not well. But in this, there's this great story, and I want to, um, let's see, do you have those? Can we pass those out? Have you not looked at them this whole time? You guys are amazing. All right, so um, true Charlotte Mason style, we're going to do a quick picture study. How are we doing on time? I have no idea. Okay, we're doing great, right? We're doing good? Okay. This is fun. We should have this much time on Sunday. Don't talk. Don't look at, I don't know how to do these. Don't look at them. Okay, pick you guys know how to picture study. I shouldn't have to tell you, right? Okay. You're doing great. Okay, here we go. Did I put it up? Okay, everyone, all right, all right. We'll wait till you get it. Okay, everybody has your thing? Okay, so flip it over. Am I allowed to describe the author a little while you're looking? No. Okay, just look.
Okay, is that about enough time? I really shouldn't have this on the screen, but I'll leave it because I went to an awakenings and we did Macbeth and I wasn't paying attention, okay? And then we had to narrate and I had no idea. So what are some of the things you see? Describe for me what you see. That's right, right? Okay. There's a wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm. So they're in the back. Mm-hmm. What else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? This is great. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some mountains in the background. Yeah. This is great. This is so fun. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool, very cool. It does look like it, though. That would be... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. These are all fantastic. So there's something fun about doing things like this. I mean, maybe you've been around this for so long and you've done so many picture studies that it's old hat. But let me tell you, as a newbie in, in, in inviting people into this journey, this is the thing that makes this tangible. It's enough to talk about the beauty of literature and the richness of the things that are available. Remember, not what we're against, but what we're moving towards. And this is a very tangible thing. How many of you did this when you were in school? You did a picture study? All of us, right? No, because you can't test for it. You can't unless you were doing the, well, I'm going to wait until you say the thing I want you to say. And then are any of you like me that when you first started doing this, and I'm still this way, Nancy, when you were doing it, I just kept waiting 
for the person to say the thing I was, you, I knew you were waiting for us to say, because that's the way my mind is. Like the teacher has something they want us to see. And there's something beautiful in just the discovery of beauty. And I know that beauty thing isn't necessarily an enrapturing or a capturing thing for some folks. In fact, it might be a pushback thing. And so that might be a thing to keep in mind. But when we do soak in beauty, we are reminded of its importance. So, so Jay, what's, what's the deal with all this, Wise? So this is a painting by Charles M. Russell. He was born in 1864, lived until 1926, and in nothing more in his life did he want to be than a cowboy. And so when he was in his late teens, he got onto a dude ranch for the first time. And one of the guys that he mentored under uh, was somebody took him under his wing and actually taught him a lot about art. And Russell now is the leading um He's known as a historian and an advocate of, the, or was, he is dead now, an advocate of the Northern Plains Indians. He's a cowboy, writer, outdoorsman, philosopher, environmentalist, conservationist, and an artist. He was born in St. Louis. Um, and so he created more than 4,000 works of art in his lifetime. And his art is first and foremost that of a storyteller. And in this, the thing that I would like to draw you to is that embrace. And so it kind of gives it away, right? Because it says it's the Shoshone camp led by Sacagawea, which is this fascinating role, at least according to Ambrose, the underutilized role of Sacagawea, um, the only native speaker to the Shoshones because she was a captured Shoshone uh, Indian, and yet uh, they... Uh, left her behind a lot of times when they were making first contact. And they went out with their one uh, Shoshone word, which they thought meant friend, and uh, just yelled it as they were approaching people. And so um, this is kind of, this is the first contact. But here's the thing that's so amazing in this, okay? So this is Ambrose. He says, shortly after Clark arrived, uh, and you're right, this is late summer. Uh, shortly after Clark arrived, accompanied by Charbonnet and Sacagawea, Kamawayat gave Clark uh, a national hug and festooned his hair with shells. Uh, okay. In the midst of the excitement, one of the Shoshone women recognized Sacagawea. Her name is Jumping Fish. In your painting, you see them embracing. She had acquired uh, that name when Sacagawea was taken prisoner because of the way she had jumped through a stream in escaping the Hadatsas, the reunited teens hugged and cried and talked all at once. This is a great moment. The, the, if you know this story, this the Shoshones are a needed tribe. They have horses, and they're going to desperately need horses to make it over the pass that... Lo and behold, wasn't the simple crossing of a single ridge. So the beauty in this, and I'm going to tease this just a little bit more. This is from uh, William Clark's actual journals. Uh, the One of the great things in American 
just history is that we have many of the journals of Lewis and Clark. There's a couple gaps in these, which is an interesting thing because they're kind of unexplained. And when they come back to writing, they're not like, oh, sorry, I missed the last week. It was, it's just as fascinating. But in this, and this is a total aside, but um, in the journals, we've got, maybe you've looked through these, so this is old hat, but in the journals, there's the stories or the essentially nature study of these guys because one of the things they were doing was discovering along the way. Let me find one. Oh, I should have marked it. Such an amateur. Okay, here we go. So I don't know the name of this fish because I'm not West Coast, but it's uh, called a candlefish a lot of places. Echelon, Echelon. Anyway, see, everyone see that drawing? So in one of the groups, somebody was saying one of the difficulties for our kids is that they don't necessarily do this for their nature study. Um, the beauty of the journals of Lewis and Clark, and I'm not going to be able to find it fast enough, is that some of the some of the entries were like that. Others of them were just total like five-year-old head drawings of a bird, and they don't care. And they completely did amazing discoveries for. Okay, I'm not going to find it. So pick up Journals of Lewis and Clark. They're actually fellas or anyone. You can get free copies um, for your e-reader, which is worth just scanning through. But anyway, in his journal, Clark says this. This is just a couple days after. So they, they meet, they embrace, and then they're going to go, and they're going to kind of see about you know helping each other, really, the Native Americans helping them. Sacagawea was sent for. Uh, this is August 17th, 1805. She came into the tent, sat down, and was beginning to interpret when the person of Kamawayat, she recognized her brother. Kamawayat is one of the leaders in the tribe, actually kind of the, the main guy in the tribe. So she, picture the scene. They're sitting in that, uh, that um, dwelling that looked like the fire was on top. So they're sitting in there, and, and the interpretation for these guys... Uh, and this might feel like some of you narrating your six-year-olds, but it's it was, so you had Shoshone, then that went to this other native language, then another native language, then to French, and then from French into English. And so in the process of all of this, they bring in Sacagawea to begin interpreting, and as it begins, she recognizes Kamawayat. She came into the tent. She recognized her brother. She instantly jumped up and ran and embraced him, throwing him, or throwing over him her blanket and weeping profusely. The chief was himself moved, though not in the same degree. Typical guy. <laughs> After some conversation between them, she resumed her seat and attempted to, in, to interpret for us. But her new situation seemed to overpower her, and she was frequently interrupted by her tears. After the council was finished, the unfortunate woman learned that uh, all her family were dead except for her two brothers. Now, Ambrose says something in this that I think is just too amazing. In describing this, uh, he says, What a piece of luck that was. No novelist would dare invent such a scene. As James Rondo writes, the stars had danced for Lewis and Clark. Jay, what's the point? This is just a coincidence, disconnected, not that big a deal. Nobody would invent this. Or these guys that were doomed without it needed this 
in a God that we serve who happens to have every detail within his grasp. One theologian says there is not one atom, not one space on this earth that Christ doesn't look at and say mine. And so this soaking in the great recognition these past days, may you be encouraged by that. So a couple things, and then I want to wrap up here. We're still doing good. That's great. So I want to point out a massive failure in me uh, in this. So we read the door in the wall with the kids, doing nighttime reading with the kids. Uh, we also were doing Treasure Island, and I was doing a lot of pirate voices, and the kids didn't like that, but you got to. So we're reading the door in the wall. Anyone read that, door in the wall? Who, who loved door in the wall? Who did not like door in the wall? Okay, this is total total transparency. So I didn't enjoy Door in the Wall. I didn't think it went anywhere fast. It, I was new to this language and this story and this, and I kept waiting. And now that I'm looking back on it, like, oh, man, that was amazing. And we finished the book, so that was good. But there was a point where I said to my five-year-old, I didn't like the book. And he didn't like the book either. Guys. You carry a big old responsibility in your house. That your kids are persons, absolutely everyone, no matter how battered by life is created in the image of God, Rick McKinley says. But their tastes are forming. And if you don't like mushrooms, they're probably not going to like mushrooms. And so, guys, be very, very, very careful about the things that you say you're into and not into, especially when it comes to the things that are being taught. Because those are the things that kids are going to carry. And so I totally blew it with Door on the Wall. Completely blew it. And so we'll regroup and we'll work past it in the next one. You're not going to get it right every time you're not. But listen you weren't going to get it right every time anyway. And so you are going to make mistakes. You are going to default to your default. But what you do and what you give is very, very important. And how you support your spouse is very, very important. And how others talk about what your spouse is doing around your kids is very important as well. So be aware of all of that. You have a role to play. So I just finished uh, Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It because I used it as an illustration in church and I thought I should read the book. Have you read it? A River Runs Through It? It's a great book. It totally makes you want to go fly fishing, right? Those of you who have read it. So there's this line in this, and I read this and I couldn't get away from it. It's, uh, he says, if you have never seen a bear go over the mountains, so he's talking about from when it comes up from the river, uh, like taken off, he says, you've never seen the job reduced to its essentials. Of course, deer are faster, but not going straight uphill. Not even elk have the power in their hindquarters. Deer and elk zigzagging and switch back and stop and pose while they're really just catching their breath. The bear leaves the earth like a bolt of lightning, retrieving itself and making its thunder backwards. Yeah. <laughs> I was on Audible. I stopped, hit bookmark, 
That's good. See, there's so much about what I believed about education before we came to any of this that was a bear heading up a hill. It was a job reduced to its essentials. We live in a culture that is creating, Susan Schaefer McCulley says, cogs grinding through our kids to produce those who can produce, paraphrase, Education is not a job reduced to its essentials, is it? And what you are doing is so absolutely meaningful. I don't know if you're a deer or you're an elk, if you're zigzagging or you're switchbacking or if you're just right now catching your breath. I don't know about all of that. But it's certainly not a job reduced to its essentials. Last thing. So I began by saying that we wanted to be a family that was known for what we were moving towards rather than what we were moving away from. But what does that mean when you aren't quite sure where you're headed or what it looks like? So in Matthew 13, it's this collection of parables. Some theologians uh, debate on whether or not it was all at once. Would a good rabbi do this string of parables or would it have been gathered? And that's not at all. Those are just the things that are interesting to me. Um, so this collection of parables, which you know this, a parable, it's, uh, it's pointing to the intangible. It's a connecting to the thing that's impossible for us to get our heads around the, 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 the thing we say. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus is telling these stories to connect his followers to something they can't grasp, but it's the thing that he had soaked in for eternity to the Incarnation. Have you ever described for someone an experience that they haven't had but was so amazing you have to describe it and yet you didn't have any way to describe it? We all have. So Jesus finishes this collection of teachings trying to get them to taste and to touch and to smell the kingdom of heaven. He finishes the stories with a question. He says to the guys, have you understood all these things? And they all say, yeah. (laughs) He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new and old or new treasures as well as old. I love that their response to the question of, did you understand this? Is Of course we did. We've been here. We were listening. We got it all. They didn't get it. Here this is again in the message translation. I know there's a fun conversation on whether or not Charlotte Mason would have enjoyed the message. It's hard to miss the poetry in Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible, not simply a dismissed paraphrase, but that's a different conversation. Jesus asks, are you starting to get a handle on all this? And they all answered, yes. Then hear this. Hear this for the first time if you've soaked in this before. He said to them, Then you see how every student well-trained in God's kingdom is like the owner of a general store who can put his hands on anything you need, old or new, exactly when you need them. We should allow no separation to grow up between the intellectual and the spiritual life of children, but should teach them 
that the divine spirit has constant access to their spirits and their constant helper in all interests and duties and joys of life. There was a quote that I read early on in digging into this that I just can't get away from because it's too beautiful and too cutting. In volume two, Charlotte Mason writes, uh, in great recognition, because he is infinite, the whole world is not too great a school for this indefatigable teacher. And because he is infinite, he is able to give the whole of his infinite attention to, for the whole time to each one of his multitudinous pupils. We do not sufficiently rejoice in the wealth that the infinite nature of our God brings to each of us. That's real hard to not get chills from. We talk about a God who is infinite. We talk about a God who is omnipotent. We talk about a God who is omniscient. But to you, as you are giving that last bit that you've got to give, as your son or daughter or student is doing the best they can do to hang on, knowing a break's right around the corner. It's not just fuzzy language, this great recognition. We say St. Augustine said that all truth is God's truth, but that quote's actually an amazingly deeper quote than that. He is essentially saying uh, that music isn't not worth studying because the pagans have music. He says, music is amazing because it reveals to me truth in Scripture. And he says, we don't avoid, let me get this right, we don't avoid uh, justice and uh, I think he says philosophy, but maybe it's a different one. He says, we don't avoid these because the Greeks have worshipped them and created uh, temples to them. He says, everything is subject to its master. And we say all truth is God's truth which is true, but it is so much richer than that. And so for our friends who are going, I don't know about any of this, how does it all connect? You go, yes, yes, that is. We'll explain it, yeah. There is no atom, no element, no corner of the universe over which Christ doesn't look at and say mine. And so this thing you are throwing yourself into what does it look like, this journey into the unknown, then you see every student well-trained in God's kingdom is like the owner of a general store who can put his hands on anything you need, old or new, exactly when you need it. What's the end game of a Charlotte Mason education? I don't know all the way, but it sure feels a little bit like what Jesus was saying his followers should do. And so for us, I don't know. So in I, all in writing this, uh, one of my favorite authors, I can't remember if it's Beekner or if it's uh, Manning who said it. I mixed these guys up. But he said he needs to be chained down when he uh, is given the task to write when staring at a blank page. He needs to be chained to his desk at the peril of going to find one more book to read. You don't need one more book. I mean, you do. 
but you don't. See, it's easy to look at someone else's library or somebody else's thing and say, if I only had that. And I love working through if my backyard looked like that. God has uniquely called you into the setting where you are for a unique purpose. Uniquely. Uniquely. The infinite creator of the universe, that nothing is beyond him, is absolutely present in the process, in the joy, in the dance that you are a part of. And regardless of if anyone around you gets this, he does. And you might be all in on this. You might be trying to figure out what that means. And I'm, you're realizing I'm not at all telling you. But it looks a little bit like the beautiful mess of the kingdom of heaven. Can't leave without this. Tolkien, Two Towers. This is Aragorn. Could it be anyone else? He says, and this is to uh, the Rohirrim raid as they're kind of seeing what's going on in their world. The things that lay before them, the, the, the seeming hopelessness of the rescue chase they're on. He says, there are some things that it is better to begin than to refuse, even though the end may be dark. And not dark in the sense of not worth it, but dark in the sense of not knowing. There is a mist in a, that we are called into sometimes that we can't know. The beauty of the map that Lewis and Clark set out with, and there's, there's, there's multiple maps, but the beauty of that one from 1803 is this gap of the dotted line that they didn't know and yet they went. And historians say the not knowing was probably what caused them to go so courageously into it. And so there are some things you are not meant to know in this process. But know this. Your God is enough. And this isn't just language in an old book this great recognition that it is all interconnected, this science of relations. It is intentional. It is a mystery that is being unwrapped and we are being invited into. And so, go and do and be. And when you feel like no one notices and you have nothing else to give, you are in the place where the gospel lives. You never had enough. You never had anything to give. The gospel says that we can't do it on our own. We're not supposed to. And so risk. Look out that second story window knowing you have a father who looks at you and says, jump, jump. Thanks for letting me share.